0: Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the National Security Industrial Base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert, Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and special operators, Hondo Gertz.
1: Welcome back. Building the Base, Lauren Bedula and Hondo Gertz here with today's guest, Shelly O'Neill Stoneman. We're so excited to have Shelly with us today. Shelly's currently Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at Lockheed Martin. And two months into the job, um, and prior to joining Lockheed, she was running Government Affairs for BAE. So some pretty incredible experience in the defense industrial base. And prior to that, spent 15 years in the public sector and nonprofit world, including the White House, Congress, and elsewhere. So we're Going to dig into that in a little bit. And something else uh, I'm going to ask about later is that Shelly chairs the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. Doc so I'm really excited to hear more about that. Shelly, thank you for joining us today. Lauren and Hondo, thank you so much for having me. I'm really
0: excited to be here.
2: Shelly, it's great to have you here. Um, you know, we like to start to show off a little bit of, you know, putting your amazing career in context of kind of how you started and and how did you get onto this arc of uh uh, a career in national security, uh, both in the public sector and now in the private sector.
0: Sure. Well, I tend to describe my life as a series of unexpected left turns. So I'm a only child of a single mom and grew up in Orlando, Florida, had a real affinity for government at a young age and did a lot of like youth and government type work, but wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with that, seemed to originally be going in a judicial legal direction. But one White House internship in the Clinton office of the White House Office of Legislative Affairs convinced me that I really needed to kind of pivot and do policy work and work on Capitol Hill. That was kind of left-hand turn number one after graduation, moved to Washington. My first role in D.C. was working for a Senate committee on international security and proliferation. Loved it. Couldn't believe I got paid to do it. Went to work every day thinking about nuclear non-proliferation and missile technology. Coolest job ever. On turn number two was marrying an Army infantry officer and moving first to Fort Benning and then moving overseas to Germany for three years. Unplanned, but certainly an interesting adventure. And then finally, um, after working over there and uh, working in the Balkans with some nonprofits and then did research on small arms trafficking throughout the region and Eastern Europe, moved back to D.C., Came back to the original through line and worked on the House Appropriations Committee for a member who later got into the Defense Appropriations Committee and thought, I've reset. I'm back on track. Uh, this is the direction of travel. And going to the Obama-Biden transition team to work on national security, which later led to a role in the White House Office of Legislative Affairs. Interestingly enough, the same office I worked in 12 years prior. Left-hand turn number three was when I had my first child when I was at the White House doing the NATSEC portfolio for the president and deciding moving over to the Pentagon in order to have a better work-life balance and have more time with my then-toddler and just regain some, some personal autonomy that is not involved in seven days a week, 14-hour days. I had my second child over at the Pentagon, and uh, after working for Secretary Leon Panetta, decided to try something totally new. And left government for the first time, made it to the industrial base and joined BA systems and you kind of covered the rest. But all of those things I think were, you know, there's a through line, but a lot of unplanned twists and turns.
1: What was that pivot to the private sector like for you? Any major surprises that stand out? Definitely. I, I think the thing that was most pleasantly surprising
0: is how many one veterans serve in the private sector in these defense companies. And I was worried what I still feel that mission driven sense of working in the public sector. And the answer is unequivocally. Yes. Um, the folks who get up and either if they're bending metal or if they're doing the most high tech work in the world, uh, they're tied to the warfighter, and they really want to do their job to the highest degree of accuracy and impact as possible. Uh, that was so clear to me during COVID more than anything else. When you saw folks coming to work, no matter what, Regardless of safety protocols, when they didn't even exist, so that mission, that sense of mission, is is really keenly felt.
2: So, uh, Shelly, we had you know pleasure working together uh, many times, back and forth in in your various roles, uh, and and I do appreciate your comment about the uh, in the industrial base and their sense of service during COVID. Uh, you and I had many long conversations about keeping shipyards open and all, all those kinds of things. Um, as you've now, you know, as the industrial base is kind of trying to deal with uh, how to incorporate startups, your experience on, you know, working in, you know, a couple of these big prime uh, contractors, uh, how, how do you see that role shifting with startups and, and how does that partnership look going to the future Uh, versus an either-or, maybe more like an either-and kind of thing. How do you see that shaping up?
0: I think the great news is at this particular moment in time that the potential for innovation, talent, and accelerated ideas is certainly there's a ton of energy behind it. The the additional set of good news is that there's so many acquisition authorities that have been put in place over the last few years that – truly do give the department of defense and you know the acquisition and procurement authorities the authorities they need in order to make this work. I think some of that is still evolving. I think there's there's you know room to grow, but I look at you know what Lockheed Martin is doing and certainly others as well, but as being a bridge between these kind of commercial startups and the Department of Defense. So often you see these commercial startups that don't have, you know, the compliance and the auditing mechanisms and the the back office needed in order to bring their really high quality, high tech innovations to market. And so that's where, you know, Lockheed Martin and others um, can, can be that bridge. We have this group called LM Ventures. And it act- is specifically about identifying, you know, these kind of these pools of startup and talent and not absorbing, not purchasing, but investing in and helping to enable their contributions to the broader defense industrial base.
2: Yeah. And, and I know your CEO is very, you uh, know, excited about that. And it's not just pure national defense. I mean, I think it's solving really hard problems, you know, whether it's purely a national defense or, you no, know, and. And you know, forest fires and and all these other kinds of things is 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 that being embraced within the company?
0: It really is that. That's actually one of the things. If you asked me, kind of, what's the most surprising thing since I came to Lockheed is how fully focused the entire leadership team is on driving this change, and that it doesn't. It is not just a defense company. It is a high tech, innovative problem solving company, the firefighting technology that she just mentioned is something that is completely out of the line of sight, you know, for, for most big defense companies. But we realize, you know, when you look at all this connectivity that's taking place with JADC2 going on in the department and connecting sensors to shooters, there's value in that connectivity and interoperability taking place in other areas, too. You see climate change taking place. You see kind of fire fires uh, really impacting kind of, you know, the world and is there a better way that we can take some of our connectivity to help enable, not not do the firefighting, but enable the intelligence behind the firefighting?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. We're actually recording today from the Silicon Valley Defense Group, and Ellen Ventures was one of the earliest members of the organization. So we definitely see him showing up with those non-traditionals um, and, and playing in the the investment community focused on national security, which is awesome. Um, something that you mentioned that I want to dig into a bit more is this idea of Lockheed Martin serving as a bridge to companies that are new entrants or non-traditionals. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like uh, in terms of partnerships? Sure. I think, you know,
0: with whether it's Lockheed Ventures or we also have a program called Lockheed Evolve, L.M. Evolve, which is kind of we've got like the the smaller startups, kind of the mid-level. And then, of course, you know, broader partnerships and JVs, et cetera. You know, it's working with them, identifying kind of talent and programs and innovation and technology. Perhaps they've identified, perhaps we've identified the problem we're trying to solve, you know, and I, I think within our company, we are very focused, as you mentioned, our CEO, Jim Takelet, very focused on, on mapping missions. What are the missions that the department is doing, and where are their gaps? And you know, luckily, I think the department is moving to that direction as well, where it's, it's mission-focused rather than platform-focused. So I think as we do that, we're doing 15 different road, mission roadmaps. We have, I think, about four done where we can help is we're identifying those gaps. And we're thinking, where is there Lockheed technology to do this? And where is there outside technology needed? And here, then we have this pool of of tech startups that were already invested in their well-being and their growth, et
1: cetera. And we figure out how do we fill in those gaps? So kind of filling in the fabric of it. Mm -hmm. It's great to hear. And I think an important model, especially if we, we talk about on our show quite often, these smaller programs that end up being fits and starts, not often going beyond prototypes or um, um, trial periods, and so this idea of partnering with a, uh, s- such a seasoned uh, player in the space, I think, is, is something that's important here. Um, and, and curious for your take, too, um, just in terms of some of the hurdles that th- those companies are facing. Is it security clearances or any of the, the challenges that you hear that Lockheed can really help with?
0: All of the above, security clearances, not so much. That, that's a department-led, um, you know, kind of bottleneck that I know they've been battling back for a few years now, so it's certainly better than it was. Security clearances, and again, it's a lot of back office stuff. It's it's compliance, it's audit. You know, anyone who's, who's never encountered the DOD FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulations, <laughs> Um, it, you know, they often, their, their innovative ideas do not survive first contact with the bureaucracy of it. So I think it's just knowledge of and navigation through that bureaucracy is probably the best asset that we can provide them so that they don't have to do that. And again, that does not mean absorbing them. That means partnering with them to help their success as well as kind of, you know, complementing our own.
2: So Shelly, having, whether it's in the White House or now multiple decades, with the uh, in the industrial base on the other side, what's your what's your sense of where we need to go? I think you know maybe five or eight years ago, everybody kind of knew things weren't great, but we didn't. There wasn't the same call to action. I think that's occurred over the last couple of years. So a lot more energy, a lot more attention. Um, where where does it need to go in the next couple of years if if we're really going to move from kind of this World War II industrial base, which they're still very Uh, You know, areas where it's needed to kind of something that can be a little more dynamic as the world gets more dynamic.
0: I think it's such a great question. I mean, certainly while right now at this this kind of moment in history where we have, you know, two different crises that are requiring a a traditional NATSEC set of solutions in order to meet the moment, you know, certainly both in the the war in Ukraine, as well as the, the conflict that's taking place in the Middle East. And so those have those are traditional defense solutions, but I also think there's this whole world out there of how to, you know, to your point, bringing folks back to this service, whether it's serving in the industrial base and, and contributing to a broader mission, or if it's in the military or if it's a public service, which I'm very partial to as well, bringing people to it to solve hard problems. And I do think some of that is, you know, technology and innovation, space, Um, It's, it's, you know, being able to think about what quantum is going to, how it's going to impact all of our lives in the next decade. And so I think to inspire that mission to serve, you have to have a love of kind of whether it's science and technology or just being able to contribute to something bigger. I, say, I know certainly at the Lockheed side, we talk a lot about Osiris Rex and it's been fascinating to see how many just even members across government are privately kind of like space, you know, astronaut geeks like, you know, in the closet who are coming out and just saying how they have looked at every picture and they can't believe to get more. And I think we have to draw up on that and, and start pulling, kids back into the like how do we
1: solve really hard problems? Mm-hmm. So uh, on the topic of talent and workforce, I wanted to ask I mentioned in the uh, at the top of the show that you're the chair of the Defense Advisory Committee on women in the Services. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like and your mission on that front? Sure. So uh, I'm going to back up a little bit and just talk
0: about when I when I went over to the Department of Defense, kind of skipped the part, the left hand turn aspect of it for me was, actually having to leave doing policy and having to, and, and working on political personnel. Initially that, I wasn't quite sure what that would look like. I don't fancy myself an HR professional. I, I didn't really understand about solving people problems. And in retrospect, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. It truly is one of the best jobs I've ever had because People problems are sometimes the most tangible things. And as a leaders and as managers, if you can solve that for them eloquently and in a way that ideally satisfies all parties, you really make an impact on organizations and legacy of that organization. But the other piece of that was the criticality of diversity of all types, background, ethnicity, uh, social, you know, social strata experience and economic class and bringing that diversity of thought to solve really hard problems at the Department of Defense. It was just it was, it was such a, a great mission to work on. So often people tend to turn and grab the person that they've worked with for 20 years that looks exactly like them and says, Oh, this thing is too important. We, we don't have time. We, we can't go find a diverse candidate. And I think we proved out that you can. So that passion for that continues today. I still tend to focus the bulk of my time on uh, when I can mentor someone or when I'm investing in a career, it's women and people of color, full stop. That, that's where I spend my time. Um, so then you bring Adakowicz into it. I was asked by the current Secretary of Defense, Secretary Austin, to chair this committee, uh, 72-year-old historic committee, one of the oldest in DOD and this committee is essentially provides all the advice to the secretary of defense on the recruitment retention integration and education well-being and treatment for all women in all of the services including the coast guard coast guard obviously goes through a little bit of a different route uh, but nonetheless we, we we take in all of the lessons learned identify impediments seen and unseen make recommendations about how we can continue to advance their experience their recruitment, you know, um, you know everything from how like a pregnancy could impede uh, progression of women after a certain point to you know why aren't we having success uh, getting people in these combat you know roles that had the rule the exclusion rule lifted ten years ago, and wrestling with those and then making recommendations and we do this based on um, you know really like peer researched level like graduate study level of work on each one of these topics bringing in representatives from all of the services, doing installation visits, doing focus group interviews. So very scientifically based in order to make those recommendations. But all in all, the the intent is to make sure that we have the most successful fighting force in the world. And to me, and I think to the secretary, certainly that means having a diverse included fighting force who can fully show up in these roles.
1: Mm -hmm. And your work at LC WINS as well, I think, does this from a different angle and something that I've uh, benefited from the Leadership Council on Women in National Security, too. So could you maybe talk a little bit about how you see nonprofits as key to this ecosystem that we're trying to strengthen around a defense industrial base? Sure. And thank you for racing. Elsie Wins. Uh, Also very passionate about that. The two
0: intersect very, very neatly. One, certainly Dakowitz is military focused. And then Elsie Wins uh, was founded by six women who were all senior women in their own right, State Department, Defense Department, development community. And they had recognized that at a certain point they were tired of either backbenching or seeing only women backbench at these big tables where decisions are made for national security you know, complex issues. Women could be briefers, women could be in the room, but they weren't the ones making the decisions. And so they, they founded this nonprofit in order to essentially remove the question from the, from the equation of, well, we just simply can't find women to do these roles. So LC wins in its first year pulled together 800 names of women from mid to senior levels. So defend, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary and above two-star equivalent, um, in order to identify talent for as many, if not all, national security role across the administration. And so in this case, this is a nonprofit that had a very real, very direct impact, not by just waving a wand and saying, you know, you should do this. It was, we can help you. We're identifying talent. And then on the back end, once folks have been identified helping them navigate through the vetting process providing guidance on to do's not do's lessons learned from others who've lived through this before providing bespoke um, murder board hearings in preparation for testimony so they get support at every step of the way and and what we what our feedback has been i've been the chair of it for the last three years has been that this is something that does not exist elsewhere It, it isn't the bottom level mentoring gap. And it's not the top level, kind of polished executive presence. It's that mid level
1: gap that just wasn't being filled. Sorry, Honda, I'm going to keep going here because, <laughs> Shelley, one thing I noticed, too, uh, just on this topic, in, in your intro, you talked about when you had your children, how it kind of fit, fa- has fit into your career path so far, which is so timely for me. Um, I'm my second week back from maternity leave, I've got a three-month-old, so I love hearing these stories, and I know a lot of our listeners, too. But just quickly, any advice on balancing your busy executive, personal, professional goals? How do you manage stress or any advice on that front? Every
0: day is a renegotiation. That's what I say to myself every single day. Some days I'm nailing it as a parent, some days I'm not. Um, I could just only try to do it as best as I can on any given day. But I think balance is something you only achieve for tiny little moments in time. And then the balance tips in one way, one direction or another. And I think some of the best advice I ever got was someone, it's almost like giving me permission. It was like a senior woman in the White House who gave me permission that that's okay. You, no one has it figured out.
2: Awesome, and I would tell you that is not a gender specific problem, although you, although you have you know, certainly gender specific issues. It's balance is, I think is tough for anybody in a lot of these leadership roles. And, and yeah, you've got to give yourself permission that it's not gonna be perfect every day. Um, just try and make it better every day. Let's talk diversity a little bit more, but now from a supply chain perspective. And, and both BAE, you know, particularly BAE being British-owned originally and then Lockheed are, are global uh, corporations that do work around the world. What's your sense on the potential to do better uh, working with and leveraging international partners? Uh, whether it's an industrial base or in the, su- you know, in, in the supply side of things. Is there opportunity to do more? And, and maybe what are some of the obstacles we ought to look at uh, going after that would allow that to be a more um, productive network?
0: I think the answer is yes. We do need to do more of that. I think having kind of a, a Buy America approach to supply chain is is – aspirational at, at best but really complicated at worst I think you know where we see allies and partnerships that we ha- we are aligned on the same objectives in terms of the pacing threat uh, whether it's China or just instability elsewhere that would make uh, deriving supply chains or suppliers, um, in certain areas of the world, we need to be really thoughtful about where we're placing them. You know, by the same token, you know, de-risking is is really the intent here. It's not deglobalization. It's it's you know whether you want to call it friendshoring or being really note thinking clearly about which allies and partners to use and and perhaps even, pardon the pun, but war gaming scenarios where that those assumptions could fail. I think is is important, but. Where we have now single points of failure in our supply chain, and I think the the lessons learned from the war in Ukraine has certainly pointed to quite a few of those, where it's a single point of failure, you don't have a second source, allies and partners in some cases are really the absolute best place
1: to be thinking about that so that we don't have single points of failure throughout. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned it's not deglobalization, but obviously an evolving international um landscape to navigate for companies, especially those that aren't as established as Lockheed Martin. Um, but it sounds like uh, still moving forward with growth, strong partnerships with allies, a- any, anything else on the international front from a partnership perspective? I
0: think things like AUKUS are a, a really you know, excellent opportunity for us to, to sort this out this that was a public set of commitments and and um, Recognition of the fact that we have to do better at this not just on supply chain But even on interoperability and on these like large-scale platforms uh, especially Honda's uh, you know former former place in the submarine world uh, figuring out all the big problems for the Navy but Also, I think there is a a keen opportunity in Pillar 2 of AUKUS. I have kind of a broken record on this because I think Pillar 1 is so important and they've they've got it right. It's on a good glide path. We've got to focus on Pillar 2. And the reason why I'm bringing attention to that, you know, regarding kind of supply chain, but allies and partnerships as well is... This is, you know, technology that we can share across the board. These are, you know, Five Eyes members, certainly the U.S., Australia, and the U.K., but it doesn't just go one way. It's not just exporting it. We're pulling it in. So, you know, just as we talked earlier about how to bring in smaller startups, we should be doing that across our allies and partnerships and thinking about, you know, what are they doing well that we haven't figured out yet or vice versa and pull that across. I think the stronger stronger partnerships we can establish there across kind of national technical industrial base and TIP countries, um, we will be, the U.S. will benefit just as much as we're, we're giving them.
2: So I know, Shelley, we, we talked earlier, your passion um, for de- building diverse teams. Are you seeing in, in your time over the last couple of years, um, more people want to get into the defense industrial base more interested in playing a role in national security. And I'm sure there's more work to do, but uh, what's your sense? Is it a problem getting worse, problem getting better? Um, and, And again, do you have a, you know, if we could do two or three different things that would allow more people to, you know, push for this as their first choice out of school, what might those be?
0: I think it, you know it's it's two things. Again, it's creating this mission environment where people are, are clear about what that means. If you just say, "Do you want to go work at a defense company?" You know, maybe the the previous vision in your mind would just be you know someone working in a factory, you know, printing weapons and, and selling them. And you know now it's it's really so much more. It's working for technology companies that are solving problems. I mean, so much about what I talk about on my daily basis is really more about the big picture things and this kind of connectivity and the mission and whether it's JADC2, it's not like a weapon. It's not a thing. It's a, it's a solution that we're, we're providing. So I think trying to identify talent earlier in the, in the, Pipeline of people who like to solve problems and what does that look like for them as well as pulling in kind of the technology folks. In some ways, everyone right now out there is a jump ball. You know, we're all trying to figure out how do we get to them? I've seen sponsorships, you know, that originally went from kind of college level trying to bring pe- people in as apprentices, then was high school level with like rocket competitions. I've seen now some at the middle school level. I'm like, wow, we're really trying to lock them down early, you know, <laughs> but, but I think that's one way of approaching it. And then, as I mentioned, I, I've just been so pleasantly surprised not being a space person from from kind of my background, but seeing how many people are so excited by the recent discoveries and exploration of space. I think that's another way. I think we've probably not, I, I'm not saying we, Lockheed Martin, we, the, the kind of the broader we have failed to connect that that is just a part, as much a part of kind of the national security fabric now as it ever was. And you can both things can be true. You can work on space and commercial
1: technology while also contributing to this broader sense of mission. It's a great point. And something that comes up often is just, th- I think that these are very different communities when we talk about startups, maybe the traditional defense industrial-based government, but the folks who are rallying around this issue r- like to solve hard problems and want to build trust and, and partnerships. So I think it's a really great point. Um, and you talked about at a high level groups that you like to mentor, but I'm curious, you've had such an interesting career path. Do you have any mentors that you recall who really shaped where you, where you are today? Oh, for sure. I mean,
0: the the first person who jumps to mind um, was actually the person who mentored me when I worked at white house legislative affairs in the nineties. His name's Al Malden. He was a deputy assistant, uh, deputy assistant to the president And he had the national security portfolio. And I'm just, you know, some lowly intern, but I happened to be an intern writing my thesis on a, a, a nuclear treaty. And I asked if I could work with whoever was in the office that was working these issues. And he took me under his wing. And I mean, that mentorship was helpful in the White House. But then he went above and beyond. He helped me get my first job on the Hill. He stayed in touch. We've had, you know, advice sessions, sounding sessions for years. And the best part is it becomes a two-way street. It's not just what can he do for me, but how can I, I help him Um, And, you know, African-American man in a very senior role in the White House also, to me, had a really important impact. Military background. All of that was just incredibly impactful for me. Um, You've had another one of my mentors on the show, uh, Debbie James, who I think also kind of a a two way street. She's done a a lot of great mentoring for me. And I got to bring her in when I was the, the White House liaison and helped to be part of that kind of process, bringing her in as secretary of the Air Force. And then the final one, I'd say on L.C. Wins, um, Gina Abercrombie Wins Stanley, who was one of the founders, another African-American woman who ended up going over to state as the DEI advisor to the secretary over there. uh, In in my first kind of coming in to L.C. Wins and in a couple other opportunities, provide some really great advice and mentoring.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to try to tie everything up with the theme of our show, um, just in terms of the evolving defense industrial base. You've made it clear Lockheed Martin is putting a lot of thought into how to keep up with the pacing threat and be a good partner. Um, and as we we all focus on the evolution that's necessary, the traditional defense industrial base gets beat up quite a bit. And you've led two significant companies on that front. Any thoughts on... Just how important the the existing primes are in the ecosystem or any kind of final closing thoughts there to give you a chance on that front? I I love that question
0: because I, I, while I think we all embrace and encourage this focus on commercial startup, innovative technology, I think, you know, the primes are doing that as well. Um, we, we consider ourselves, if we're just standing t- still and continuing to print whatever it is we were making, that's A, not very interesting, and B, you know, not very profitable. <laughs> so we like to solve problems, and so we are, you know, equally innovative. And I think there is room for both. Um I do think sometimes the pendulum swings really hard in one direction and, and it's important to remember all of the goodness that is taking place out there in the broader primes. And and again, I point back to COVID. I, I was just blown away by the workforce during COVID. I mean, I, I will I will never forget that. Just the people who showed up to work every day, not to miss a deadline, not to let the work fighter down, to keep giving it their all when they, they weren't even sure they could be safe that was something that was taking place at the prime level uh, because we had you know, we had the manufacturing facilities in order to, to you know continue to produce these things.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think it's an important story and perspective to share as, again, we think through just the changing nature of the threat and, and the industrial base. Um, Shelley, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story in terms of your own career and the work you've been doing both in government and outside and I think a lot of great advice on today's show. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shelly. You've been listening to
0: Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.